Uh, our reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 31. For the message of the cross is, foolish, is full, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent are frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness, foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jesus the, Jews demand miraculous sign, and Greek looks for, wind, for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumble block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the wisdom of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. No many of you were wise by human standards. No many were influential. No many were of noble birth. But God chose foolish, foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of, the, of this world and, he, and the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we've just sung together, we confess that we are prone to wander from you, that as much as we love you, we are prone to leave you. And so we pray, Father, this morning that you would take this part of your word and that you would take our hearts and that you would seal them by your truth. Father, would you illuminate this part of your word to us by your spirit? Would you help us to concentrate and would you transform us in our minds so that we might live for you and for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I hope that as you got out of bed this morning and got ready to come to church, you took the time to stop and think, I am a fool. I hope you, look, you looked in the mirror and thought, what a foolish thing to be doing on a Sunday morning. I hope you thought, I can't wait to get there and see all those other fools. Now, it would be a slightly strange thing if you actually stopped and thought that, because no one wants to be a fool, and you're not fools, we know that. We like to fit in. We, we like to think the way other people think. No one wants to be a fool. But, as you would have heard from that reading just then, the reality is, if you want to live an authentic Christian life, a gospel-centred, cross-shaped life, you have to be a fool. 
you have to be ready to be thought a fool. There's no other way to do it. And if you don't do it that way, you're not doing it right. This passage from 1 Corinthians, where we're just jumping in, this is a one-off talk today. As you would have heard right there, it is about the foolishness, not just of us, but the foolishness of God. Now that's an offensive idea, isn't it? The foolishness of God, at least as the world would understand wisdom and foolishness. And therefore this passage is about what it means for us to live as the people of God and to live like fools or to look like fools as we live as the people of God. So before we uh, jump in and have a a look at what this passage is all about, uh, a little bit of background. If you've read 1 Corinthians before, you will know the Corinthians had problems. This was not a church that had it all together. The letter is mostly written by Paul, their apostle, to them as a church to reprimand them, to rebuke them for a whole lot of ways that they were getting it wrong, to pull them back into line. And we're jumping into the very first part of the letter. The big issue that the first part of the letter tackles is where they've gone wrong by letting divisions and factionalism come in and start dividing them as a congregation. And the reason that divisions and factions had crept in among them is because they're thinking about wisdom in a worldly way. They're looking for worldly kinds of wisdom in what they expect to have preached to them or what they expect to to base their lives together on. And they're setting themselves up with different leaders who they think are the wise ones or the best ones or whatever it may be. All of that is crept in and is starting to rip them apart rather than them being united by the gospel of Jesus. And then if we we had time or we were doing a series or something, we'd go on into chapter 2 and we'd see how they were expecting human eloquence, a worldly kind of eloquence from their preachers rather than expecting what Paul had given them, which was a message that relied on the Spirit of God to open people's eyes and to show them the truth. But we're just focusing on this one little section in between the first half of chapter 1, which is about those divisions, chapter 2, which is about that human eloquence versus the Spirit's work. In between that, we get our section, which focuses on the foolishness of God and the wisdom of the world. And it presents us this idea by showing us there's only one message, but there are two different responses to that message. So one message, but with two different responses. The one message is the message of the cross. It's the message that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world as a ransom for many, the one who would come into the world as our saviour, who went to the cross and died in our place. And in doing that, took our sins, took the the punishment we deserved for our rebellion against God on himself so that as we turn to him and trust in him and what he's done for us, our sins can be forgiven and taken away and we can have peace with God and forgiveness and eternal life and a fresh start with God. That's the heart of the message, the message of the cross. But the first response to that message is to see it as foolishness. You saw that uh, very clearly right at the opening, verse 18. You see it in verse 22. We're told there, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom. We're told in verse 23, the message is a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to non-Jews. And who exactly is it that hears the message of the cross this way? Paul says back in verse 18, it is those who are perishing. It's those who are perishing. Let's just pause there and think about the weight of that word for a moment. Perishing. 
I find it desperately easy to forget that this is God's diagnosis of people who live without putting their trust in Jesus. This is God's diagnosis of most of the people that I see around me most days. Do you find it easy to forget this? Do you find it easy to forget that the people you meet are actually perishing without Jesus? I remember hearing the story a while ago. I heard a man speaking, a minister at a large church in central London, uh, in, the, in the wealthy kind of banking district of London. And he was talking about when he first arrived at this new church as the new minister, and a function was put on to welcome him by some of the, the local businessmen. And these are wealthy guys. This is the kind of financial district. And he was describing how they all turned up dressed in their $1,000 suits and welcomed him, and, you know, great to have you in town, vicar, and all that kind of thing. And he described this scene of meeting all these men who weren't part of the church but were super important and super wealthy. And he, he said his predecessor at this church was there. And as he was greeting all these powerful, important people, his predecessor took him aside and said, never forget, brother, they're all perishing. One of the effects of perishing like that is that it causes you to see the message of the cross as foolishness. And you know what that's like, don't you? You've, you've probably experienced it firsthand. You've seen bits and pieces of it around. You see it a lot these days on the internet. Let me give you a couple of examples. You've got that picture there, Dave, the first one. This is uh, someone's attempt at humour. Brain when you're born, brain when you're born again. Aren't we stupid? Or this one, this is one I've seen around in different forms. The belief, this is Christianity, the belief that a cosmic Jewish zombie who is his own father can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and telepathically tell him you accept him as your master so he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree and we're all supposed to just renounce our faith instantly because we're all so stupid. Now, we could spend time debunking all those things and showing why they're ignorant and why they're stupid, but that's not the point. The, the point for now is this is what people think around us. This, this is the way the world sees the message of the cross. And it hurts a tiny bit when it's memes like that, keyboard warriors on the internet. It hurts a little bit more when it's things in the media that are kind of still at arm's length but a little bit more personal. But it starts to hurt a lot when it really is personal when it's someone in your family or a close friend, someone you love and respect, who thinks you're a fool for following Jesus or who thinks you're a bigot for being a Bible-believing Christian. It hurts. But I think the truth is, for everything we experience, the disrespect that might come our way, the anger, the whatever, I suspect it would have been even worse back then because we kind of have... 2,000 years of Christianity and there's a certain cultural respect, at least in some circles, and the cross, if you think about it, actually has kind of become respected or recognised. You know, some of you will be wearing it right now as a piece of jewellery and, you know, it shows you're a spiritual person or whatever. Back then, the cross was a symbol of humiliation. It was repulsive. It was the symbol of evil and the symbol of defeat. It would be a little bit like today. People say, well, what do you believe about God? And say, well, I follow someone who's just been executed in the electric chair. 
and then you ratchet up the offensiveness and the stupidity of that a few times and you start to get at what the cross was like for people in the first century. It was a horrible thing. See, it's always been foolishness from a worldly perspective. So, if it's foolish, can't we just get rid of it? Can't we move on to something else? Can't we change it? Well, not so fast because there's a second response to the cross and that is to accept it as the very power of God. The very power of God. Now that is an extraordinary statement. The power of God is supposed to be found, well, you can think of where it would be found in spiritual gurus, maybe in a powerful worship service where you have this sense of coming into the very presence of God. Maybe it's in great natural wonders. Maybe it's in miracles. Wherever you might expect to see the power of God, it is not in the message of a man being arrested and tortured and humiliated and crucified. And yet Paul says to us, to us who are being saved, we see this as the very power of God. The, the only way that can work is if you connect the message of the cross into the big story of the whole Bible. So, so that it becomes, it's not an accident, it's not just humiliating for Jesus, but you start to see that it's the solution that God had planned from before the foundation of the world and that he then worked out through salvation history and brought us to the cross as the culmination of it all because the cross is the thing that deals with our sin. And so as we start to see it fitting into the Bible storyline, we can understand why this message is the power of God. And when we, when we fit it into the Bible's big storyline, we can also start to realise why we shouldn't expect the centre of our faith to make sense from a human point of view. Because at every major point in that story leading up to the cross, God was constantly acting in ways that nobody would have expected. You could go back to Noah, for example, couldn't you, and say, yeah, what a, what a humanly logical solution to send a giant flood and have someone spend about 100 years of his life building a giant boat to be saved from it. Or you could go to Sarah. Let's wait until she's 90 years old to give birth to the person that would launch off into the nation of Israel. Or you could start with choosing a man with a speech impediment in Moses to be your spokesman to Pharaoh. Or you could go to David and say... Yeah, it's perfectly logical to choose a shepherd boy no one had ever heard of to be the greatest king of God's people. On and on we could go. God delights to do things in ways that nobody expects. And that's never more true than at the cross, which is the power of God for the salvation of our sins, from our sins. So let me ask you, do you know this? Do you believe this? Or are you still in a place where you see this Christian obsession with the cross as foolishness? Or maybe the cross is nothing more than a nice tale of sacrifice, an ancient legend, but you certainly don't see it as the power of God. Friends, if that's you, if you're aware that that's where you're at this morning, the diagnosis that this part of God's word gives is that maybe that means you are still among those who are perishing. And as unpleasant as it is to talk about, the only thing that matters for you, if that's you this morning, 
is to come to God and to ask that he would help you to see the message of the cross for what it truly is so that you might move from perishing to those who are being saved. Or maybe you know in your head that the cross is the power of God. Maybe you say, yes, I I know that. But you're aware that in some way it's drifted away from being the centre of your life. Maybe you've started to take it for granted. Maybe it doesn't excite you the way it once did. Maybe it's not that kind of pulsating centre of your life to be coming back to the cross again and again. Maybe if you're honest, you'd say, yeah, it's in the thoughts and I know things about the cross, but it's not the centre of how I think about my salvation and the centre of how I think about God. Maybe in some way or other, you're losing sight of what we read in verse 30. Verse 30 in this passage tells us that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. He's our our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. And so maybe instead of that focus on Jesus, there is some kind of worldly wisdom that's creeping in and is occupying more and more of your thoughts. Could be the latest book you've read, could be the latest guru, the latest podcast or the latest viral video sensation that claims to crack open how Western civilization works, whatever it may be, rather than looking to Jesus and to seeing that he has become for us wisdom from God, everything we need. Maybe you think that you can eloquently argue people into the kingdom of God. Maybe you're in danger of expecting the wrong thing from God. I'm going to admit something to you, stupid, and this this is kind of silly, but I sometimes catch myself thinking, wouldn't it be great if there was some major, like A-list celebrity that got converted and could just stand up and tell the world, say, I've become a Christian, and suddenly everybody would want to listen and the ridicule would stop? Or I think, wouldn't it be great if we just started getting all this favourable treatment from the press and they wanted to write our stories for us instead of what they wanted to write? But then I realise, if I start thinking that way, I've forgotten that God deliberately uses the lowly things of the world. God deliberately uses the despised things of the world, not the things that the world thinks are great and wise. That's the way God does it. So brothers and sisters, whatever form the distractions that could take us from the cross take, and there's many of them, isn't there? This morning as we hear this part of God's word, come back to the cross. Never let go of the cross. Come back to the foot of the cross. If some other idea has captured your thinking, if some other distraction is leading you away, if your hopes or your expectations have gone wrong, come back to the foot of the cross. Christ and his cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God. So, Why does God do it this way? Why does God's power come to us in a form that so many people don't recognise that is so foreign and strange by worldly standards? Fundamentally, we're told, God does it this way so that no one can boast. So just look with me at verse 27. Verse 27, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And then we finish on the same note in verse 31. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, in a way, it would be kind of nice if being a Christian was based on worldly wisdom and worldly insight. 
Because that would mean that as Christians, we were the smart ones. And we were the ones who figured it out. We were the ones who cracked the secret of life. We would be the cultural elites. We'd be the clever ones. And that would feel nice. Because we could go around boasting about that. But would it be nice? I don't think it would be nice for very long, would it? I mean, for one thing, if it was the intelligent ones who were saved, would you be confident that you'd be in? Just, just generally speaking, I'm not thinking of anyone personally. But look, more to the point, if that was what it was about, what an ugly business our evangelism would become. Because we would be going alongside people saying, I am smarter than you, let me enlighten you. How proud we would become. How ugly the church would become because it would be a coalition of the superior uniting together against the inferior ones out there, you know, the poor dopes around us. How ugly church life would become because we'd become like the Corinthian church. We would divide ourselves. We'd be looking for whoever's the wisest among us and quickly trying to line ourselves up with that person. And there'd be comparisons and there'd be people trying to elevate themselves above each other and take pride in their achievements instead of what Paul wants, which is love and unity and common purpose centred simply around Jesus. And most importantly of all, if we had anything to boast about, it would rob God of the glory that belongs to him. Boasting or worldly wisdom would make salvation about us. The way God has done it makes it about him. And so we can now graciously come alongside people around us as nothing more than beggars who found food and are trying to show other hungry people where they can find food. So brothers and sisters, to be a Christian is to embrace this foolishness. It's not to be as foolish as you possibly can in every way. I mean, you know that, don't you? Uh, living with wisdom is good. You go back and read Proverbs, read many parts of the Bible. Having a renewed mind that can think clearly is good, and I think that's one of the great fruits of the gospel is your mind starts to come alive in a new way. So we're not trying to be as foolish as we can in every way, but it does mean that we attach ourselves unswervingly, unflinchingly, unrelentingly to the gospel of the crucified Messiah. Whatever the consequences, whatever people think of us. Look back at verse 23 in our passage. We preach Christ crucified. If you wanted a two-word summary of what we're all about, that would not be a bad place to go, would it? We preach Christ crucified. At the beginning of this week, I went along to the, the Latimer Retreat. Some of you know the Latimer Fellowship had organised a, a conference at the beginning of the week and uh, it was mostly people who are involved in Anglican ministry around the country. Really encouraging to meet people who are serving in a range of backgrounds and a range of contexts during a pretty tough time. And I was talking to one brother who said to me that uh, with his particular church, there have been times where he has felt overwhelmed with everything going on. He said he's had people in the community saying negative things about him. There have been things in the media about him and about his church. And he said that he feels like he's standing against all the machinery of the Anglican denomination. But then he said to me, he has remembered through it all God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all of those things. And that if God is with him, who can really be against him? Brothers and sisters, 
if the world thinks we're fools, does it really matter? I mean, it hurts. No one's going to deny that. But does it really matter? Wouldn't it matter far more if in our desire to follow worldly wisdom and worldly ways of doing things, we'd set ourselves up against the power of God? What would we really be left with? What is the media next to the power of God? What is a denomination next to the power of God? The message of the cross may not feel powerful. It may not feel like you arm it up with much when you're going into battle against all the wisdom that the world has to throw at us. Or even more frightening, a family gathering where people don't agree with you. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And as we finish here, what a joy it is to think that the God who does all of this, who deliberately works in this kind of way, might even use us to spread this message and to grow this message with all of our weaknesses, with all of our flaws. All those times when you feel weak and lowly, guess what? God might like to use you for that reason. Because God uses the lowly things of the world. God uses the things that are weak and are despised, including you and including me. He uses people like us because the very message we preach is a message of lowliness and of weakness. Not one of power and wisdom, but one of humility and one of suffering and one of service and one of death. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the message of the cross. And we pray for people known to us and people around us who haven't yet accepted this message and therefore are perishing. And Father, we long to see that people would move out of perishing and into being saved with us. And so we pray that you might use us in our workplaces, our homes, university studies, school, wherever we are, to bring this message to people that they may be saved. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to hold on to this message, never to be taken away by it, by, from it by human wisdom or by anything else, but instead to hold fast to the message of the cross and to remember that it is your power for us who are being saved, that we might live by it and be delivered from boasting and we might give you the glory for everything you've done in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.